HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. I would love to dedicate this episode to Oliver Armin Bresnitz, my wife and I's new son. He's about a month old and he is totally awesome. Oliver, we love you. Super excited to be sitting down with chef owner Johnny Lee of Pearl River Deli. If you haven't been, incredible Chinese food in LA's Chinatown. We talk about the pandemic. We talk about his relationship with Hayden Chicken. And we talk about him cooking food that he considers authentic while having a conversation with others about what they consider authentic. It's a really insightful and delicious conversation. We hope you enjoy it. Then we have brothers Casey and Keaton from Raised on TV. They talk about their new album, Fernando, which they're releasing as singles only with the full album released in September. We talk about them building a recording studio during the pandemic and what it means to go home creatively. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes here on HRN. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes. Saturday. Well, the 
Johnny, hello. How are you? Welcome to Snacky Tunes. How are you? I'm great. Glad to be here. Thanks. Um, so, you know, I think the first time I read about you or, or heard your name was in this Eater article about Hanan Chicken. And I would say a lot of people associate you with that dish. And I remember you with the rubber chicken and it being sort of an eye-opening article into a dish and type of cuisine I never heard of before. Um, I would say that you really popularized the dish in LA and beyond. Um, how do you feel about being tied to that dish or known for that dish? And do you feel any responsibility to it as you've con continued on in your career? To be honest, like, I think the joke around the shop is that, like, we all, everyone's like, we, we all hate Hainan chicken. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we don't like it's become a, it, because it's so popular and we have to make so much of it. It kind of takes over like mm. the entire identity of the restaurant. And also it takes up so much more time preparing it because we have to make so much of it now. Yeah. I remember when there was that um, burger craze back in 2008, 2009, so many restaurants while they were excited to sell so many burgers ultimately felt that they couldn't run a real restaurant or the restaurant they wanted to, because they were just focused on one dish. Yeah, it's a challenge because, you know, this dish ends up paying all your bills. Um, and then and then you want, but you also want to do other things creatively, you know. So I want to go back a little bit. Um, you were born in China, but immigrated to East L.A. and eventually wound up in Arcadia SGV. What was it like growing up there? Who cooked in the family? Um, was food something that was important to you growing up? Uh, I wouldn't say that food was like, important in my mindset when I was growing up. But it was something we I looked forward to. Um, on Sundays, we would make the usual trips to Chinatown to for grocery shopping, like a lot of Asian, Chinese American families did. Uh, and then going to a restaurant or dim sum was actually like one of the highlights of the week. Because that food was always so different from what we ate at home. And uh, who cooked in the family? Mom, dad, grandma? Uh, was it a collective effort? Um, were you allowed in the kitchen as a kid? Uh, as a kid, I don't think I wasn't allowed in the kitchen, but I don't think I tried to be in the kitchen. Usually that was my mother's domain, so I didn't really enter much. Sometimes my father would do some cooking too. It always seems like in Chinese American families, it's always like the mother cooks certain dishes and maybe the father cooks other dishes, certain dishes maybe like once or twice a year. Now, I know that um, chicken is a big part of your life now, but you've mentioned before that chicken was a big part of your life growing up. Uh, what was the importance of that specific type of meat? Yeah, I mean, chicken is something that's very affordable for most families. Uh, I think the Cantonese cuisine... Uh, a poached chicken is that is kind of like one of the easiest meals you can prepare for your family. Mm -hmm. You know, one chicken, you can buy a chicken and it usually feeds a family of three or four. Uh, all you need to do is, you know, a pot of water and some aromatics like scallions and ginger, which are usually pretty cheap. And you just poach it with some salt water. And, you know, you have dinner on the table in like 40 minutes, 30, 40 minutes, you know. Yeah. Um, so even though you grew up around food and, and you look forward to dim sum, um, that doesn't automatically bring you into the professional culinary world. Um, what drew you into cooking in restaurants? How did you get started on your professional career? 
so after I graduated college, uh, we I got out of college right during the financial crash of 2008. Mm. So it wasn't a great time to be looking for a job. So I just <laughs> got into the restaurant business via working for my uh, uh, friend of my mother's who opened a restaurant in the state of Colorado. Uh, so I, went, I moved over there for a bit because they needed help with someone who could speak English. It was a Chinese American style restaurant. And then I just got there and I just kind of like learned to love like the pace of the work and you know like the type of the type of work you know you know it was interesting because 2008 2009 food was more well known in the mainstream but not what it's like now with social media and people you know getting famous off of that um how did you feel about you know changing professions and going into a kitchen uh, I think for me it was, I think it was something I was kind of all like starting to get interested in in the up in the coming years. Um, up to that point, I, I was watching a lot of cooking shows. I was getting into cook, like cooking on my own in college, but I hadn't really thought of it as a real career. Um, mm. At the same time, I didn't really have a clear idea of what I wanted to do in my life. I thought I would just you know go to school, get a degree in business, and join the professional like office world but you know having did like an internship in office i kind of quickly realized that it wasn't for me <laughs> yeah so i think for me cooking what just seemed a lot more interesting and uh, i think the 2008 uh financial crash kind of gave me an excuse to get to like jump into the field yeah i mean i think and we'll get to this in a little bit, but the parallels between what happened in 2008, 2009, and then what's been happening the last year, very similar, um, especially how it's affected the, the relationship with the restaurant world and, and those who got into the restaurant world. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of celebrities. Uh, the difference now is in 2008, uh, people were willing to work for anything because there weren't any jobs. Mm. So, you know, like everybody was happy to take kitchen jobs for like, you know, uh, at the time it was like nine or 10 bucks an hour for minimum wage. Uh, yeah. And, you know, there was a lot of people, and that's, that's when the whole celebrity chef craze was really starting to take off. So a lot of people were eager to jump in the kitchens for like low pay. Right, because they thought they could see it as a, as a quick rise to fame, especially if you did something like a food truck or, you know, were just out there doing something a little bit louder than everyone else. Yeah, yeah, totally. And everyone's like, totally you know, follow their dreams, you know, their passions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, you've cooked in a, a, a variety of different places, um, but you do, you wind up focusing on a very specific or, you know, your own style of Chinese cuisine. How did you land on the type of food that you wanted to cook and ultimately dedicate your culinary career to? Um, I think there were multiple reasons for me to get to this point where part of it was growing older and kind of seeing like the next generation of my family, my nieces and nephews. I kind of noticed that a lot of people in my age group didn't really know how to cook the food. Or they kind of knew, like, they're very, they're familiar with dishes, but very, very, most of them didn't really know, or they just relied on their parents to 
taught them how to make certain things, or they still re relied on their parents to, to make certain, certain dishes, you know, uh, like the annual like uh, rice dumplings that we call jung, uh, that's wrapped in like the uh, bamboo leaves. Uh, most people don't really, most people don't know how to do it. They have a vague idea of how it's assembled, but the actual like uh, skills on how to wrap it and tie it, uh, that's still something that most people, my, most Chinese Americans of my generation, that's they, they kind of uh, rely on their parents, usually their mothers, to do that. And you know, I know so not a lot of people actually have learned to like do it themselves. So, do you see yourself as a steward of classical preparations? Because I know that you're very vocal on social media about you have your take and then sometimes people have their own take and there's sort of um, a disagreement at times, but you know, when you have your food, you, you very much taste the tradition and see the techniques um, that have a lot of legacy. Yeah. So for me, I think I want to highlight the fact that Cantonese cuisine is a lot more varied than what a lot of us uh, Chinese Americans think it is. Because a lot of us grew up with a very, how should I say, like a narrow viewpoint of what Cantonese cuisine should be based on what we ate at home and what we ate growing up. But the cuisine, the cuisine itself is extremely varied based on the geography because it encompasses such a large region of China. So I think one thing is I want to I also want, I also want to highlight what Cantonese cuisine has always been in China, but also what it's becoming, because the food has constantly kept evolving after we left the country, you know, and migrated to America. So, you know, you see a lot, there's a lot of Asian American communities where, like, the food is like a time capsule from the era that they immigrated. So, like, Vietnamese food oftentimes is, like, some people say it's, like, stuck in the 70s and 80s, you know. Uh, similar for Chinese food, like, a lot of, a lot of the immigrants that immigrated from uh, China, to, at least the Cantonese immigrants, were like Toy San Chinese, which is where I'm from. And, you know, that region is not actually really known for like being a uh, culinary like uh, capital, you know, it's actually a very low, uh, like high poverty, like, like uh, poor area of China. And, you know, like a lot of the culinary traditions that we have here, from immigrants from the 80s and 90s kind of reflects that. Got it. I mean, your cuisine's very inclusive, right? It's it's unique and very open to trying different dishes as well. Yeah, I mean, I think people need to also... I think there's also this, like, interesting... Uh, uh, how should I say, uh, opinion in the Chinese American community. Like, uh, people don't view Americanized Chinese food as real Chinese food, you know? Mm -hmm. you, know there's often, you know, we have a term for it in Chinese. We call it, uh, pretty much we call it white people's Chinese food. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think that's kind of a bad way to look at it because, like, if you look at Cantonese immigrants in other Asian countries, they've always adapted the food to those local countries. So, like, mm. there's Cantonese food in, like, Thailand and Vietnam, and uh, Singapore is heavily influenced by Cantonese food, and it's interesting to see how it's evolved there. You know, being that Hainan chicken is kind of, like, one of the 
you know, dishes that has come out of that uh, immigration. So I think, like, for me, I think I like to, I also like to highlight the Cantonese cooking of the Cantonese diaspora that's ended up in other countries. So, you know, that's why I always, I tend to dabble a lot to Singaporean Chinese because I find that very fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's really amazing to show how there are more similarities than differences when you start cooking the food and looking at the different through lines. Yeah, you know, I kind of view as like, there's, you know, like how Tex-Mex has become such its own thing, you know, sure. in America. And you can trace its origins to like, being influenced by American and uh, Mexican traditions. And, you know, like, I don't, and yeah, like I, I kind of view like Chinese American food in a similar vein, you know. Um, you know, it's kind of taken on its own identity and I think we should appreciate it for what it's done for, you know, it's, it's definitely helped a lot of families economically, you know, put their kids through college and everything. So I don't think we should discount it as not a real cuisine. I agree with you. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and we come back. We're going to talk about Pearl River Deli, how that got started, and some of the additional food that you've been taking up uh, and putting on the menu, addition to um, dealing with COVID and a lot of other things that happened last year. We have a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are here with chef owner Johnny Lee of Pearl River Deli. And for those who are unfamiliar with Pearl River Deli or who haven't had the pleasure of eating there, I feel sorry for them. But would love to hear the story of how you wound up opening and why you picked um, Far East China Plaza in LA's Chinatown as a location to open up. Yeah, so I had, at the, at the end of 2019, I had just relocated back to Los Angeles after uh, spending a year in Chicago. And I kind of didn't have any plans. I just knew that I needed to probably do something to kind of stay relevant and keep my name out there and make a little money. So I went back to planning pop-ups. <clears throat> and I, I already had this Pearl River Delta brand that I was experimenting with over the years. So I was going to continue that. And um, at the time, coming into 2020, uh, Bauhaus had recently closed down here in Far East Plaza. So uh, the landlord offered me the space to do a pop-up for Chinese New Year's. And, you know, around the time, I think COVID was still just kind of like a rumor. You know, people were just like kind of whispering about it, you know, uh, but nobody took it very seriously. Um, so it wasn't until we took over the space about a week before Chinese New Year that things started to sound like it was getting serious. And then, you know, we had, so we started to pop up intending to only stay for maybe like two or three weeks. And then, yeah, we just kind of like, after Chinese New Year, we, we decided to stick around a little bit longer, you know, just to try it for like an hour month or so. And then, you know, it, the response was pretty good. So I, I was kind of thinking like, maybe we should stay here a little longer if we can. And then the and then in March, when the shelter in place order happened, everything kind of shut down. And I was like, I'm not sure, but at the same time, I had nothing else going for me. So I decided, you know what, if I can make this work, you know, maybe it's just, I'll just work by myself and work with one other person. And we'll just, you know, as long as we can, kind of pay the bills uh let's just try it out you know because like what else am i going to do and at the time like we didn't know how serious this was going to get right because if i knew how bad it was going to get at some point i i, I might have considered reconsidered but you know i was kind of naive to be like well maybe this will be okay maybe it'll blow over in a few weeks or a few months <laughs> why would you have reconsidered only because when I think of the short list of restaurants that at least appeared to do well and navigate the pandemic, I put you guys at the top of the list of people who were able to come out of the pandemic, build a great following and, you know, really have a good business. Um, I, I think because if we have, well, one, one thing is like, I was seeing how much like some of you were getting out of unemployment. <laughs> So I was like, mm, I probably would have made more money sitting at home not doing anything than doing this, you know? <laughs> right. Like, to be honest, like, since in the beginning, like, I wasn't really making, paying myself much anyway. And, like, there was a lot of, like, uncertainty. So, like, what if, what if, like, this doesn't work out? I just spent, like, all this time not paying myself, you know, <laughs> um, just for this business to fail, you know? Right. I, I got you. But you've, 
come out, I don't want to say we're on the other side because I would think that's probably ignoring the global issue and the continuing issue with COVID. But as LA starts to lift restrictions and we're all looking at this June 15th date of what it's going to mean, you did come out after a year with a, with a business. Um, what were some of the highlights and what are some of the, the thoughts that goes through your head as, as LA County starts to change? Yeah, I mean, I think in retrospect, I think things turned out pretty well for us. Um, I think one of the main advantages of the pandemic was that it, the expectations of restaurants like were, were suddenly like very drastically changed. I think a, a lot of people ended up becoming more sympathetic with restaurants mm. uh, because of the situation. And I think people were, became very... Like a lot of people were very accommodating to like, to like, to, to, to like certain things. To like, okay, well, we're not gonna offer a seat anymore. You know, like everyone's more understanding that like everything has to be take out. You know, but you know, they, like they 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 don't complain if like the fried food that you sent out is not crispy anymore. You know, because well, that's just how it is. Right? You know, sure. um, so people became a bit more like understanding of the situation. And I think we kind of took advantage of that by deciding that, you know, I, I was always, when I opened this, I was always under the pressure that, like, I was going to be cooking just whatever the hell I wanted, you know? So, <laughs> so you know, I, you know, we got, so, and I had a lot of different things I wanted to try. So, it ended up being like, well, every week I just ended up cooking something different, you know? And then we started, like, getting this, uh, expectation that like every week we have specials, and then it will turn up like, and then it somehow end up being every week. I every week or every two weeks, I would, I would like come out with like three or four special dishes, and sometimes there will be like a theme to it. And I think people wanted something. They even during the pandemic they wanted something interesting still, you know. And I think we were, we we try to keep doing things that were, that were interesting to us. And I think people responded pretty well to that. Uh, you know, usually people tend to like just want something consistent or they want the same thing every, all, every week. And I think we were offering something. We, we, I think we were still trying to be ambitious. I think people appreciated that, you know, despite the times. And despite the size of 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 the restaurant, because if you've never been, it's it's a uh, it's on the smaller side, but the amount of food that you pump out and the specialties is really inspiring and impressive. Yeah, I mean, I think that's only possible because I'm willing to work, like, on my days off. And, sure. you know, um, yeah, like, I'm willing to, like, come in on my days off in order to do certain things, like, to make sure, to, like, get, jumpstart some things and make sure that, like, like when, when we tried doing, like, experimenting with, like, roast duck, you know, I was here on my days off, you know, like, uh, air pumping a duck with the hydraulic, not hydraulic, the, um, the, the air compressor, you know, yeah. <laughs> and like setting up a fan inside a fridge, you know, to like blow dry it for, on the days we were closed so that like by the weekend, it would, the skin was like super dry, you know. I know. Um, so, you know, COVID wasn't the only thing that we've, as a society, dealt with last year. You know, there's been a lot of uh, any black sentiment, a lot of anti-Jew sentiment, and a lot of, you know, anti-AAPI sentiment. Um, have you had to deal with any of that? And 
how have you navigated, you know, some of the responsibility that you maybe feel as a restaurant that focuses on Chinese cuisine? Yeah, I mean, I, I've definitely thought a lot about, you know, the whole Black Lives Matter movement and how we can be better and be supportive, you know. Um, at the same time, I didn't want to appear to be virtue signaling anything. Like for us, I think we've always wanted to be genuine about who, who we are, you know, and, you know, like for us, I think we're pretty inclusive um, in terms of like who we associate with, who we want to promote, um, who, you know, who we want as customers. And, you know, we tend, I just generally believe that I want to treat everyone with respect. So for me, you know, seeing all this like violence, it definitely disheartens me a bit, you know, but I do feel optimistic when I see the like response from like people forming groups to like, you know, such as the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, it, uh, you know, those are the kind of things that as a company, as a business that if we get to a point where we're more financially, we have a lot more, we have a bit more like excess cash flow, you know, that's like things I definitely want to contribute to as a business, you know, uh, which I, unfortunately, I haven't really been able to because like we're still kind of just kind of like not just barely breaking even, but we're not like extremely profitable yet. But you know, we hope to get to we hope to get to that point, and you know, then we can actually put, you know, kind of like align our financial contributions with like what we really believe. You know. No, of course. I mean, do you feel that a restaurant does have a responsibility to the community and at some point uh, to give back um, should be a part of where restaurants are going as people start to reconsider restaurants' roles in society? You know, I've always kind of thought that restaurants have this, like, unfair, like, position of being an intersection of, like, like culture and economic issues and race issues and you know like we're a very low margin business you know you know our influence financially is is carrying pretty minuscule but i think because everybody has to eat everybody has to gather at restaurants we become a visible gathering place for all these issues so i think as a restaurant i think it's important that if you support you know these ideals I definitely think you should. Uh, I think you think you should uh, try to contribute where you can, but at the same time, it's tough, you know. Like money-wise, I don't know how. You know, I don't think that you should. You know, we should expect restaurants to like, you know, contribute that many resources because, like I said, it's a low-margin business, you know. No, I I uh, I agree with you that putting. I think there's individual responsibility with a person or a business, but ultimately there needs to be a larger infrastructure scale to really help uh, with reforms and support financially for society. Yeah. I mean, as much as I would like to contribute more, you know, you know, like, yeah, like I said, we don't make that much money and I work a lot of hours. So like yeah. my, res my resources are shot, but at the same time, I am inspired when I see other of my fellow like restaurateurs spend a lot of time and effort to organize like these like events like a steep they did that anti-asian hate like a charity sale mm -hmm. and you know like the fact that we already are overworked you know but we still find time to make these things happen 
I think that at least can be kind of like an inspirational kind of like example that like for other people to do more as well, you know, even though we have our resources are, are limited, you know, we still try to make things happen when we can. So, um, you know, to bring it back to what we sort of talked about at, at the very top, um, while you're known for your hand and chicken and your charcuterie pork, um, you know, I know that you've started to focus um, on some other dishes and starting to shift what PRD is going to be as LA starts to reopen. Can you share a little bit about um, the mental thinking behind the, the menu shift and, and how you like to see the restaurant evolve in the next few months? Yes. Yeah, so before we had, before the pandemic, I had kind of, I kind of had like, like a vague idea that maybe we'd have this kind of set menu for lunch and at night we would kind of expand upon it and do some more intricate dishes you know, to like a smaller set of customers. Um, you know, certain dishes that just don't make sense anymore economically uh, just because they require, because you can only charge, for the price you charge for it, the labor doesn't make sense, right? Uh, there's a lot of dishes like that in Chinese cooking where you use, there's a, a lot of time spent on the preparation. And a lot of restaurants don't bother making those dishes anymore just because for them, it's just easier, but it's much easier for them to make like a hundred stir fries rather than, you know, ten of these other like, 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 like a beggar's chicken, which is like, a, like a, a deep old, like a, a stuffed chicken dish that you like baking clay, you know. Um, but then for me, those those are, those are the dishes that are most interesting, you know, and I want to preserve. So, I think for us. Moving into reopening, I want to find, create like a an opportunity for us to showcase these dishes, and still make a business case for them. So, you know, for me right now, I think we're looking at trying to start like what I call like dinner service, which is going to be a mm. menu that's going to be uh, take some of our current menu, but also add uh, special dishes that we're only doing for dinner. I'm mostly only for doing for dining uh, because a lot of these dishes will not travel well at all. Um, you know, they have to be eaten on the spot because that's kind of like that's kind of like one of our uh, pillars of Katsu's cuisine is that you know freshness is important. So yeah. dishes that are cooked, you should eat it right away. You know. Well, Donnie, that all sounds amazing, and I can't wait to come back in for lunch and to come out for dinner if people want to follow along about the menu and check out the specials and see some of the behind the scenes stuff where can they go how can they check stuff out you know we're pretty we're very active on instagram i think that's usually the best way to stay up to up to date you know um we do update our menus on like google and and uh, online as much as we can but for up to the minute like last minute specials you know definitely follow us on instagram you know check out our stories and uh, yeah, we'll make announcements pretty soon about the whole dinner menu stuff. Right now, we're still kind of like in the testing phase, mm. and uh, we should be opening up to taking reservations soon for for, for outdoor dining. And uh, yeah, we're just gonna start doing our Fridays only for now, just to kind of like uh, kind of like figure figure stuff out, you know, because we've been a takeout only restaurant for the last year, so sure. going back to like actual table service and 
figuring out that what we need, you know, and using non-disposable, uh, you know, like uh, plate plateware. I think uh, this, you know, we got we're gonna ease into it, and hopefully we can uh, expand to doing it more than just Friday nights, you know, multiple nights a week. But uh, yeah, we're just gonna kind of take it slow and yeah, ease ourselves into it. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to come and eat. Uh, thank you for making the time. Um, we have another song from the archives and then a live performance here on Snacky Tunes on hrn.org.
My name is Brandon Boy, co-owner of Roberta's, a super duper awesome place. Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. Keaton and Casey, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you for making the time and uh, excited to hear some songs coming up in the, later in the show. How you guys doing? Uh, good, Darren. Good, man. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Doing well. Yeah. So you guys are native San Fernando Valley. And um, for those who aren't familiar with the scene, the music scene there, what was it like when you were growing up? How has it evolved? What's it like now? Oh, man. Uh, should I go first on this one, Casey? Yeah. All right. Um, it's definitely, I don't know. I feel like it's changed for sure. Um, when I was younger, there was definitely more of a, of a rock scene and specifically punk rock. Um, that's all pretty much kind of died away. There were more, there were more rock clubs as well that have closed down. So that's kind of, kind of depressing. Um, it's kind of sad. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there's definitely still, you know, there's still a scene in there. Uh, of course, you know, we've been going through the pandemic and uh, mm. we'll see how things shape up once we kind of come out of that this summer. But yeah, a lot of places have closed down. Like uh, there's the place, the Satellite, which has been a great, that's been a great yeah. venue for many years in LA. And they, as far as we know, they're done with music. Um, and there's been a lot of venues that have shut down. Um, but uh but yeah, well, how about you, Casey? I would say that uh, the in the Valley, I'd say that it's definitely been dwindling. And then with COVID, uh, that definitely made it a lot less. And even the ones outside the Valley have been dwindling. And yeah. it's, been, it's been interesting. Live music really took a hit with almost no relief on like other industries like restaurants or things like that. You know, there was... Yeah, man live streaming yeah. and things like that but it was just there's nothing you can really yeah. do and it, there's still a bit of a question mark of when it's going to come back in full truly yeah i mean yeah music and live music needs it needs a crowd of people and crowds of people are dirty and sweaty and and sexy and um, <laughs> <laughs> no i was gonna say uh there was this one place when i was younger called the cobalt in the san fernando valley um i don't know if you remember it casey but it was cool because it was like, a, it was kind of like, it was a rock club. It was all about rock music. And like a lot of bands that came from the Valley back in the day, got their start there. Like bands like Incubus and uh, Hoobastank. Um, but uh, yeah, that I was, just, I was actually there. Yeah. I was there for their last show. Yeah. I think it was like 19. Really? Yeah. Yeah. The One of the first shows I ever played was there. But, hmm. um, but yeah, so that, you know, just kind of thinking back on like how the scene used to be and what, what was around and what's gone. That was one place that I remember that was cool. Cobalt. Mm. So uh, your brothers, um, right. how did you two get into music? Did you share music and bands growing up? Did you guys swap or was it, I got my people, you got your people, or maybe, you know, you swapped favorite records and things like that. Mm. How about Jason, you go first, man. Cause I, I went first in the last one. <laughs> uh, I would say that uh, for music, I definitely grew my taste from uh, Keaton and then also our sister Victoria. And then so 
I didn't actually start playing music until uh, I was about 20 because of a friend. And then once we started playing, uh, I started developing more of skills. And then Keaton was doing music with a, a few friends. And then basically we, uh, on separate projects, ended and then realized that we could start together. And so that's how uh, Race on TV became a thing. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could start a band with anyone, and obviously, um, Keaton, it sounds like you did, but what drew you to each other? You know, what was it about being brothers and starting a band together that really sparked that, you know, creative uh, process, but then also, you know, wanting to go through that creative push and pull with someone you're related to? Yeah, um, maybe I'll say, uh, I think there's something about working with someone that you know you can rely on, and that, you know, you can, like, fully trust um not just creatively but just like on a personal level i don't that goes a long way Mm. it goes a long way in this world and in this in this music industry this music business that's full of uh full of crazy people (laughs) it's full of full of liars and thieves definitely adds that fun and uh, adds a fun and elastic feel to it or it doesn't Mm. feel like there's tension yeah i mean uh it's definitely fun because um, I feel like, you know, when you're out on the road and you're touring or you're in the studio and you're working on something and maybe things get like tense for a moment, um, it tests, it definitely tests bands and it tests relationships. And um, you either got to be like really close friends that maybe grew up together or you just have like a really good understanding of each other or you kind of got to be family or on that level. So to actually be brothers, to actually be family, um, it really just kind of like it lends itself to a very strong foundation um, on on any kind of project, but definitely with music. Definitely, uh, it definitely shows how uh, someone can react under pressure too, and the ability of us being able to handle any kind of situation definitely helps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's get into a song. I think the first one you have up for us is "Soul on Fire." What's the so yeah, that's that off track? of our second album, season two, um, and uh, it was a single, and we just kind of it came about. It was before before COVID and everything. Although it kind of sounds like it's about COVID because it's like the chorus is all about like getting outside and and you know being being mm. in a place where you feel alive. But yeah, I wrote it. It was kind of about like trying to separate yourself from uh, like your phone and social media and like just constantly feeling like we're hooked on that. Um, So yeah, it was just kind of like about getting away from that. And um, yeah, it's like an upbeat kind of rock song. And this live live recording was from a tour that we did uh, in 2019. Awesome. Uh, well, here we go. Raised on TV, live on Snacky Tunes on HRN.
Welcome back to Snacky Tune. Here with Keaton and Casey, raised on TV. So, I mean, it's weird to say we're at the end of the pandemic because, depending on where you are in the world, it is not the end. But here, at least in LA and America, cases are dropping.、Um, and I think a lot of people use the pandemic in different ways.、Um, and you guys went into the studio.、Uh, what was the decision to do that? And did you bring material? From before, because you said that's on fire. Sort of sounds like before the pandemic,、yeah. but obviously, writing you, there's all these things and emotions and feelings and themes that maybe、mm-hmm. made sense in March, the first week of of twenty twenty. That by、yeah. like the second week of twenty twenty in March didn't make sense anymore. So, what was the、yeah. uh, impetus to get the studio, and what was what was you, what were you bringing creatively? Yeah, great questions, man.、Um, should I go first on this one, Casey? Sure. All right.、Uh, so yeah, we actually we got in the studio、um, just because we you know we needed to do something. We needed we had a bunch of songs that we had written、um, in 2019, and we got in the studio with someone, and it kind of didn't work out.、Uh, it didn't come out the way we wanted it to, and、um, that's kind of like a long story. But what we ended up doing was、uh, we built. Our own studio, basically,、mm. and、uh, I used to do a lot of recording and stuff, and、uh, it was something I kind of got out of and just kind of focused more on writing and playing. But during the pandemic, you know, there was a lot more time on our hands, and so me and Casey, in our practice space, we converted it into a studio as well. We got some gear,、uh, got this cool old mixing board, and、um, kind of learned how to use it. And、uh, so we got in the studio. We Then we that didn't work out, and then we built a studio, and then we record we recorded a whole album that we called Fernando after the San Fernando Valley, where we grew up and where、uh, where we live and where we're from. And、um, yeah, it was mostly material that was written before the pandemic, but tracked during it. And、uh, yeah, Casey, how about I'll I'll shut up and you pick it up, man. Pick it up, boy. I don't know wherever you want.、Um, Fernando. Definitely a lot more of a free experience with recording because it wasn't in a studio and no pressure with it. It was just you and me, and so it just made all the recording a lot more fun. Totally,、mm. yeah. We were and we were going for kind of like a more、uh, gritty garage rock kind of sound from what we did on our second album,、uh, which was a little more or a lot more polished,、um, which is awesome too. But.、Uh, Yeah, we kind of we really wanted to go for like this what felt to us at the time like a truthful kind of sound.、Um, so that's why this album is it's different. It's definitely it's more garage, and maybe in a sense it's kind of like more more of our roots, more of just you know how we really sound. Well, I mean that sort of ties into the naming of the album because、um, you know San Fernando Valley where you're from and the name Fernando.、Yeah. Um, What what made you want to name it after your home, or at least a homage to your home?、Um, yeah. And、uh, what was it about returning to your roots during this time、um, that was so important to you? Um. Well, yeah.、Uh, we had originally named it season three to go along with our pattern of season one, season two for our albums. And yeah, we kind of just felt like it was time to change it up.、Uh, we We used to be a three-piece band,
Um, and then in the time uh, before COVID hit and after we put out our second album, we kind of became a two piece and um, we still play with other guys and everything. But uh, so, yeah, it was just, it kind of felt like, all right, let's not name it season three. Let's name it something else. Let's kind of start a new, a new pattern um, or just a new way of naming our albums. So we just kind of thought Fernando was cool. It was kind of like, it's kind of funny in a way. It's like, it's a guy's mm-hmm. name. It can be a guy's name, but it obviously had, you know, more significance to us because it's uh, named after where we grew up, but you don't know that necessarily. Sure. Um, so yeah, I just, yeah, there was something kind of quirky about it that I thought was cool. Well, how about you, Casey? What did you like about the name? Oh yeah. It was just more of a reflection on like the start of where we've always lived and also always made me think of how uh there was this one dude in high school that was like a i want to say he was like not a, like a groundkeeper named fernando so that always oh. made me laugh oh yeah. yeah that guy was cool man. super chill dude um yeah. i knew i knew him too yeah he was like yeah. uh groundskeeper janitor yeah. he was really so that cool. Always he was Nice, man. I didn't yeah, think no, about definitely. that. Definitely. Man, you're just, uh, you're really opening it up for each other about the inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really um, kind of full circle here. Uh, let's, uh, let's hear another track. Uh, I believe you're playing Strange Times, which I got to say seems like a pretty good theme song for what we just went through. Um, but yeah. what's the story behind it for you guys? Yeah, so this one is probably the most COVID-related song on our new album, Fernando. Uh, it's the first track on the album, and uh, yeah, it kind of thematically had to do with when the when the pandemic first hit and everything was really strange and everyone was kind of readjusting. And um, I had written the music and the melody a long time ago and just kind of had no words for this song for the longest time. And then for some reason, uh, I, the words just kind of felt right. It felt good uh, when the pandemic was happening, and I was, you know, I'd go to the park with my guitar and, and uh, try to come up with stuff, and it just kind of stuck. Awesome. All right. Well, here we go. Strange times live by Rays on TV on Snacky Tunes on HRN. Do it, man. Getting tossed in the dark, washing machine of life doesn't leave you clean.
Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We're here with brothers Keaton and Casey, raised on TV. Um, I really like the way that you're releasing the album, Fernando, which is singles only, but also each one is tied to a video. Um, I've seen the singles only, never as a cohesive album, though. I've seen, you know, singles a day or singles a month. So what made you want to release it as a single? And then um, what has been the creative process in making these videos and tying it all together? So, yeah, the whole thing behind the singles was kind of just really kind of trying to take into account the the music industry now and just kind of the way it is with people's attention spans and uh, streaming and Spotify and everything. And um Unless you're a really well-known band, it's really kind of hard to put out an album and have sure. it have it get its fair, you know, its, it's fair, uh, its fair due. Have people really kind of listen to it front to back and have every song be heard. So we just kind of felt like uh, putting out singles was the best way to kind of hopefully get as much attention as possible, you know, because uh, every single is a new chance to really kind of to market it and spread it around on every platform and maybe get new, get new fans every time, you know? So it's kind of like spreading the, spreading the load uh, versus just kind of just busting it all out in one album load, (laughs) which, you know, I wish, I wish we could do that, uh, do a couple singles and then do an album or something. But it's also kind of cool to do singles, too, and um, just kind of see how each single does and how people respond. And, and sometimes you get surprised, like, oh, I didn't think that single would get that much love or, or, or you're surprised in a bad way. It's like, oh, I thought that single would do great and no one seemed to care. But, you know, then it's like, all right, time for the next one. Let's keep going. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of all about getting on playlists these days. And that only really works as, yeah. as singles. Totally. And that's a part of it, too, because, yeah, with, with Spotify specifically, uh, they let you submit, you know, every song to their editors and all that to get on the bigger playlist. But if you put out an album, you can submit one song off of it. But then the rest of the album, you know, it just it doesn't get doesn't get a chance to be submitted. So languishes at times. Yes. Yes. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the videos. Uh, what's the inspiration do they all tie together? Um, you know, each one has its own different feel. They're pretty fun. They feel very, uh, you know, tying back to the home vibe, like sort of home movie, sort of dreamy, ethereal, hanging out. Um, what was the thought behind yeah. them? How are you making them? Um, you know, what's is there a plan after they're all done to do something bigger with them? Yeah, as far as the videos, I mean, we well, we kind of had to we kind of had to think in a way where it's like, all right, how can we be creative and make something cool with less money, you know? Because uh, if you're doing eleven videos for you know for a whole album, you kind of you spread yourself thin in a sense, but it kind of gives you a chance to make to make more. But you kind of have to be you have to be more creative with less. Uh, so. It's kind of it's kind of like a challenge. So we come up with ideas like, all right, what can we make with almost no money in one day, or what can we make with like you know a friend of ours running the camera 
and it's just you and me. So it's kind of like, it's like very limited in what our resources are, but it's like, it challenges you. So it's like, all right, let's come up with something. What, what would be cool? It's like, all right, how about we do a video that's all one take and it's just me, you know, walking, singing the song um, at sunset or sunrise or whatever. Uh, or let, let's do something where like I'm on my bike and you're on your skateboard. Um, this is. So, and then like, and then we found, we happened to find at that time, like a bunch of old, uh, home movies, um, that my, that our dad had, uh, had taken like from old baseball games and stuff. So it's like, well, it might be kind of cool if we do an edit where we're kind of, uh, we're, you know, we're doing our thing now and then we splice in this old footage. So that was the video for In the Valley. Um, and we actually, we have a video that we're going to, we're about to make for one of our new singles that we're pretty excited about where Casey's going to play a cop and I'm going to be a guy be, uh, being chased in a foot chase while singing the song. And it's like a two minute song. So it kind of, and it's called Mess I Made. So um, it kind of works you know, thematically. Well, that's awesome. I mean, I think it's, you know, I, I think to your point, um, if you have a lot of money and you have a lot of well-known that you can go that more traditional route. But if you're just trying to be creative, I think you just got to think about it truly in a creative scrappy way that gets yeah. some love and gets some notice and just do things that feel good to you as an artist as well. Definitely, man. Yeah. Scrappy is a good word. To, to use because um, that's kind of that's kind of what it ends up being but it also it can have it can have more heart in a sense too you know it's like I feel like it's kind of cool like it kind of reveals something about you about you as a as a band or as an artist um, mm. you know yeah when you when you take a little of that that monetary sheen off of it you see something a little bit more real yeah yeah. Um, well, look, I want to make sure we get in uh, enough time for one more live song. I know you mentioned In the Valley as one of the videos, and that's one of the songs um, that we want to hear. What is the story behind this track? Yeah. So uh, In the Valley, it's a piece of music that I wrote a long time ago. I don't even, a long time ago. I think I might have been in college or something. And um, I'd kind of written the words for it slowly over the years and it's just kind of about it's about where you grew up and then friends that kind of go in and out of your life and uh friends that you lose you know sadly and then um uh and just kind of reflecting on all that and uh so it's kind of you know there's like nostalgia in there and you know longing for days that are gone and and then there's also just kind of like trying to pull out the meaning from, you know, from why things go the way they do and uh, why you why you lose certain friends and certain friends you don't. I think a lot of people are having those thoughts during the pandemic as well. Yeah. Yeah. So for listen, sure. thank you guys for making the time. If people want to check out the albums and the videos or follow along as you guys start thinking about touring again as America starts to open up. Where can they follow you? Where can they find everything? Um, so, yeah, you guys can find us at RaisedOnTV.com for sure. Uh, Spotify, Apple Music, Pandora, Deezer, 
All the streaming sites uh, were there. We have a new album, Fernando. That's going to be all of it's going to be released by September of 2021. And we're putting out singles in the meantime. And um, what what else, Casey? What did I forget? Did you say Twitter? Uh, no, I didn't. Also Twitter. Big on Twitter. <laughs> Good old Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're there, man. All of them. Well, listen, thank you guys. Uh, thanks to Johnny from Pearl River Deli. Thank you, HRN. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Greg. Thank you, everyone. And uh, we will see you next time. Here we go in the Valley, live on Snacky Tunes, raised on TV. We'll see you next week.
We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.